Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment's PowerCast. The PowerCast is a bi-weekly audio program for those interested in the top conservative insight and analysis of energy, climate, and environmental issues. My name is Darren Bax, and I'm Senior Research Fellow, Environmental Policy and Regulation in the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment. Central to our system of government is separation of powers. The legislative branch, not agencies, have lawmaking power, but the blurring of this power has long been a problem. And we're seeing this problem right now when it comes to regulatory efforts to, in effect, kill off the internal combustion ed- engine. The federal government, and specifically the EPA through its Motor Vehicle Emission Standards and National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, through its Fuel Efficiency Standards, want to dictate what you drive. Simultaneously with this federal effort, California has adopted regulations that would ban new internal combustion engine vehicle sales beginning in 2035. So in 12 years, in California, there will likely be a ban on new gasoline and diesel-powered cars. And while these California regulations may appear to just be about California regulations, there's a process under the Clean Air Act by which other states can adopt California standards. For the California ban, though, to take into effect, the EPA has to grant California a waiver. And this very well might happen. Here's who hasn't decided to, in effect, ban gas and diesel-powered cars. Congress. Certainly, legislators have spent a lot of money to promote electric vehicles, or EVs, but Congress hasn't taken steps to ban gas and diesel-powered cars. And when legislators who represent the American people are not making major decisions, the voice of the people is being silenced by the ideological agenda of a small group of unelected bureaucrats. Today, we'll discuss what's happening at the EPA and ITSA, and then turn to what's happening in California and how the waiver process works. In addition to the policy implications, we'll also discuss legal implications as well. To help us navigate through all of these developments, we're joined today by two leading energy and environmental experts. Justin Schwab, former Deputy General Counsel at the EPA, is the founder of CGCN Law, and Derek Morgan is the Executive Vice President of the Heritage Foundation. So let's get right to it. First, Derek and Justin, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Glad to be on the PowerCast. Great. Uh, So uh, before getting into all the latest developments, let's take a quick step back, if we could, and understand the role of the EPA when it comes to vehicle emission standards and the role of NHTSA when it comes to fuel efficiency standards. So, Jess, I'm going to start it off with you. you. Could you explain to us EPA's role when it comes to setting motor vehicle emission standards? EPA's authority is in Section 202 of the Clean Air Act. Now, first, it's important to note that this is a statute with express preemption. Apart from the specific mechanism of the California waiver, which we'll get into later, Congress forbade state and local governments from setting their own standards for air pollutant emissions from new motor vehicles and new motor vehicle engines. First, under this statute, EPA determines that a class of cars has air pollutant emissions that may reasonably be anticipated to endanger public health or welfare. Side note, 
It was the Bush EPA's refusal to make that determination for greenhouse gases that led to the Supreme Court case Massachusetts versus EPA in 2007, which is what got EPA into the greenhouse gas regulating business in the first place. After it makes that so-called endangerment finding, EPA then establishes standards for emissions performance for cars by model year. And these standards are supposed to reflect the greatest degree of emission reduction achievable through the application of technology that EPA's administrator determines is available. And the statute says EPA has to give appropriate consideration to cost, energy, and safety factors, and is supposed to give appropriate lead time for industry to adopt them. EPA has expanded that list of factors a bit by its own discretion. It looks at energy security. Uh, it looks a little at consumer preference, but that statutory command is the core. And it's important to note that this is a loose balancing function between these statutory factors. Congress has not mandated any strict recipe or weight for the factors. That's a great summary, Justin. And it's important to note that you know, they do have to take into account all those Please think about those factors. Um, so, Derek, I'm going to turn to you. Can you explain NHTSA's role when it comes to fuel efficiency standards? Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to note that uh, that NHTSA was actually the first um, agency on the scene for this. Uh, following the Arab oil embargo in the 1970s, Congress passed uh, the Energy Policy Conservation Act, and that gave uh, DOT the authority to set fuel economy standards for uh, for fleets, for manufacturers. And they were supposed to look at um, four factors primarily that as high as possible, maximum feasible is how it says it, uh, that is technologically feasible, that's economically practicable. Uh, they have to consider the effect of other federal standards and uh, need to conserve energy. And of course, that was primarily in view because America was a major oil importer at that time. And with the Arab oil embargo, there was a real concern to try to get uh, more miles per gallon. Now, uh, two important factors, they also need to consider safety now, and they also can't consider alternative fuels like electric vehicles when they're setting their standards. That's great, too. So we got good foundation here on these, on how the, the regs uh, work. Um, Justin, so let's go to, to today, and can you help us understand what's currently happening at both the EPA and NHTSA? What are the regulations that they're they've kind of finalized that are so concerning, and uh, why should we be concerned about it? So it's a complex situation, but I think we can talk about it at a high level and still get the point across. Uh, EPA and NHTSA have both issued new regulations that set a very aggressive ramp rate over the coming model years of CARS, uh, for respectively greenhouse gas emission standards expressed in terms of grams of CO2 per mile traveled by EPA, and then gas mileage, maybe a more familiar concept to everyday uh, consumers and drivers uh, on NHTSA's side. Uh, the agencies have also changed their legal position on whether NHTSA's statute preempts state and local greenhouse gas regulation of cars and whether EPA's statute allows California to get a waiver from federal preemption for climate targeting car regulations rather than traditional localized problems in the nature of smog. So the agencies have set a very aggressive push in mileage and greenhouse gas standards that as a practical matter will not be met by the auto manufacturers just building a better mousetrap in terms of tweaking uh, the internal combustion engine. 
Uh, it will, in fact, rely on an elaborate system of credits and trading that will be taken from expanding electric vehicle sales. Uh, this really will transform the auto industry and the related fuel and energy sectors if it's carried through as envisioned. Yeah, I think your your last lines there are definitely kind of the key thing here. Um, so, Jess, I have a couple of questions to follow up. So, have the agencies acknowledged in their regulations that like they're intending to increase EV sales? Like that's part of their intent? Yes, that's that's undeniable. Uh, it's been calculated that in order uh, to meet the 2026 standards, the new standards for 2026, uh, electric vehicle sales will need to roughly quadruple to reach about 17% of the market by that year. Remember, this is less than five years from now. Uh, also note, in August 2021, uh, President Biden issued an executive order, and this established as national policy, quote, a goal that 50% of all new passenger cars and light trucks sold in 2030 will be zero emission vehicles, including either hybrid or fully EV. So depending on what slice of the market you're looking at, how you measure it, that would represent between a five times increase and in some markets, a 100 times increase from current and recent sales of EVs as market share. So this is not, as some people try to portray the clean power plan for power plants, this is not a mild or a market following regulation. This is a very ambitious and transformative goal. Yeah, Derek. Yeah, I'd jump in here and just say, uh, you know, EPA kind of acknowledges that, but they've arranged things this time. And I think hopefully we got a chance to get into this later as well, but they've rearranged it so that EPA and California kind of got to go first. And then DOT said that they not they say on the surface that they're not uh, trying to force EVs, but by letting those other two agencies go first, they're saying, oh, well, those are other standards and they're doing their thing. So we'll just include that into our baseline, even though statutorily they're not allowed to do that. This is an excellent point. After that Massachusetts versus EPA case in 2007, where the Supreme Court essentially compelled EPA into the greenhouse gas regulating business, one of the reasons the Bush EPA and the Bush DOJ had given for not wanting to go down that road would be conflict with Department of Transportation's role through NHTSA, because effectively the way you regulate uh, greenhouse gas performance for cars is to, in, is to increase their mileage performance, sort of make them more efficient uh, in their in their in their uh, combustion of fuel transport a car or for an EV. There's just no direct emissions from the tailpipe at all. Uh, after the Massachusetts case in both 2009 and 2012, the agencies, Department of Transportation's NHTSA and EPA issued joint rules. Well, this time they have decoupled for various reasons, but one of the reasons, as just alluded to is NHTSA can now kind of say, oh, well, this is all happening anyway, so we get to take that into account. Some monkey business may be going on with their statute. So I, I did want to get into the interplay between the, the, the agencies and their standards, but I think we just covered it. Um, Derek, did you want yeah. to add anything? Yeah, I'd just say, you know, this is an example, another example of kind of pen and phone uh, <laughs> lawmaking, if you will. We heard that originally from President Obama regarding climate uh, legislation during his term in office. He wanted Congress to address climate change as he saw it. And he said, if you don't, I will, using my pen and using my phone. And he recently got slapped down by the Supreme Court for that. And I think we've got a very similar thing working here, where he wants to, this time President Biden, wants to see the transportation sector change from fossil fuels to renewables, just like President Obama wanted from fossil fuels to renewables in the electricity sector. He's trying to do, now President Biden's trying to do that for transportation. 
I'm going to throw a curveball here for, for both of you. And I'm, this is something that's kind of interested me and concerns me is when you have an executive order like Biden's executive order, you know, trying to differentiate between what he's trying to say and whether or not the agencies are actually kind of acting independently and actually doing things based on what's actually based on the science, the data, or whatever, or if they're just trying to be doing what Biden wants. Derek, did you have anything that... Yeah, I mean, I'm torn a little bit because the president is the elected official and he can chart a course and all the rest, but, uh, and then they dress it up later. I mean, they had clearly had a place where they wanted to go, where they want to try to do 50% by 2030 would be electric vehicles with an eye toward uh, banning the internal combustion engine. That's clearly, at the end of the day, uh, where the, the left wants to take the transportation sector, uh, and they're really torturing these statutes in order to try <laughs> to get them to do that. And um, I, I think that you're going to see a strong legal pushback on that, and hopefully you'll see congressional pushback on that, too. So, Justin, and I, I want to— I, I would just note very quickly, the Chief Justice Roberts, I think it was in the vaccine mandate arguments in January of this year, Chief Justice Roberts sort of, and I know we'll get into jurisprudence in more detail later, but I just want to note in this context of executive orders and sort of top-down whole-of-government approaches, Chief Justice Roberts was musing out loud, and he did sort of ask the Solicitor General, it kind of seems like the administration decided what it wanted to do, and then it went rummaging around in all of its statutes to look for some plausible hook to claim that it had authority to do that. This really does seem to be a reversal of the paradigm, the schoolhouse rocks that Congress sets the policy. Yeah, Schoolhouse Rock, I think, misled all of us. Uh, <laughs> so, Justin, I do have a another follow-up for you on the it's kind of this regulatory schemes here. It, so if, if the agencies can literally force a shift to some EVs, what, what prevents them from shifting to sale of only EVs? And do you think that's kind of their plan? They may be worried about increased legal risk if they push it to that level where no internal combustion engine driven cars will be part of the new fleet rolling in. Uh, but do note, the Clean Air Act defines a motor vehicle as, quote, any self-propelled vehicle designed for transporting persons or property on a street or highway with no reference to its fuel or power source. Now, EPA does also have extensive statutory authority over fuels. I suppose you could make a structural argument that all of EPA's authority over cars is fundamentally based on the traditional fossil fuel and internal combustion engine model. But under the logic of the current United States government position, I'm not sure that there would be anything to prevent them from taking that final step to an all EV requirement. Uh, and as you noted, California, other states, foreign jurisdictions have certainly adopted policies, goals that purport to lead us to a future with an all EV new fleet. And on a timescale, that means that most of the people listening to this podcast will, under this announced schedule, see that world come to pass. Hey, Derek. Yeah, I think uh, Justin's uh, analysis is, is solid for the most part. The one thing I'd point out is that you do have this major questions doctrine um, now. And so I, I think the court will be looking at this and trying to figure out if, uh, if Congress really, if they're going to do something of such major import to change the entire transportation uh, sector. And by the way, this is the most expensive regulation of the entire Biden administration, just as it was the most impactful one for, for Trump. And I, I believe Obama before that. So this is a major, major regulation. And uh, they'll have to try to say that uh, it was within view 
that these agencies would want to eliminate the sale of the internal combustion engine, which I think is just a stretch and is uh, will not be uh, will not pass muster under the major questions doctrine. So, Derek, you you kind of mentioned some economics there, and I want to turn to a question for you on kind of the impact of these regulations that we're talking about here, not not just on like auto manufacturers, but what would the impact be uh, from these agency efforts to on uh, on consumers and other businesses kind of throughout the supply chain? Yeah, well, I think the the major impacts um, are to the auto companies, to be sure. And they're saying that there's no way they're going to be able to do all this. So you have to give us many, many more subsidies. And in fact, what they saw in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, uh, misnamed in my opinion, uh, was more um, subsidies for electric vehicles. Uh, so they're, they're saying if you want us to go all electric, you taxpayers need to pay for it. So consumers will pay more for uh, on taxes. They'll pay more uh, for their autos as well. Just the, the DOT regulations were over $2,000, added more than $2,000 to the price of a car just for these model years. And the cumulative effect of these is to radically increase the cost of vehicles. And the reason why is because when someone buys a, you know, a Ram 1500 pickup truck, uh, FCA corporations got to turn around and buy credits from basically from Tesla or other electric vehicle makers. And so there's a big cross-subsidy going on there. So that affects the car companies and the consumers. Other industries are impacted too. Let me uh, say one other piece of the auto industry. Both uh, Volkswagen and Ford have estimated that EVs are about 30% less labor-intensive to make. Uh, and from one standpoint, you might say, well, maybe that's progress. Well, these cars are on average $18,000 more expensive. So they're not only they're more expensive, but they're less labor hours involved. So if you're an auto worker, uh, that's going to make you very, very nervous. And in fact, the UAW has uh, sounded some some concern over an, an all EV future. In addition, I think of two other industries that are impacted, though it would be many more than that. Uh, certainly, the oil industry would be impacted with uh, demand destruction from uh, a change in fuels from gasoline and diesel into electricity. And also, this is one that people don't always think about, but our agricultural community would be really gravely impacted. In fact, the Ag Retailers of America did a study that looked at what would happen in an all-EV future. And the numbers that they found were staggering. Farm income would decrease by $27 billion. Uh, you would have job losses just in the ag space of 255000 You would have uh, corn prices falling 50%, soybean prices falling 44%. And you'd have uh, ethanol declines of about 90%. So when you add all of that up, you've got a, a weaker energy picture. Uh, you've got a weakened ag sector. You've got auto workers that would be hurting and all on the back of taxpayers. Not a good deal. Wow. I didn't know about some of that that, that data at all. You know, it's interesting how the, the regulatory efforts by the administration has, in effect, kind of led to Congress kind of passing legislation to an effort to kind of uh, empower or whatever, enable that whole regulatory scheme. Yeah, they take one little fairly vague um, part of a statute and they, they uh, expand the power as far as they'll let them and beyond. And then it's up to the court to push back on it, which they thankfully started to do. So let's uh, turn to California. And Derek, I'm going to get right back to you. Um, so California's got some new regulations. Um, can you tell us what those are? And, and I, again, I want to clarify, California would need to get a, a waiver from the EPA 
for these regulations to go into effect. That's correct. So they have um, in the past received a waiver to have their own vehicle emission standards uh, that started under the under President Obama for uh, for fuel economy, where President Obama sat down with the Department of Transportation for, with NHTSA, with EPA, and with California's three regulators to have one program that all uh, did the same thing. And um, now California wants to be even more aggressive. So California balked when the Trump administration provided some relief under fuel economy regulations. California decided they wanted to go their own way. Uh, the Trump administration denied their waiver to do that. Uh, and now uh, they've decided they want to be faster even than Biden. So they want to go to a 100% ZEV, so-called zero emission vehicles. Uh, in other words, you cannot buy an internal combustion engine vehicle in California by 2035. In order to do that, they do need a waiver from EPA. And then unfortunately, you know, um, part of us as conservatives, we say, well, if California wants to go do their thing, that's kind of up to them. In this case, it doesn't really, federalism isn't uh, appropriate because it's just California and they can only ratchet up. Texas can't have more um, reasonable standards. It's only California, it's only up. And then once California goes, other states, primarily blue states in the Northeast, could jump on board. And um, that's um, all of that can happen with a waiver from EPA that they're, uh, that they're looking for right now. So speaking about the, the waiver, uh, Justin, can you give us a brief summary of this waiver process and why is there even a, a waiver process at all? So, so again, we have to start by remembering that the Clean Air Act expressly, expressly preempts state and local governments from setting their own car emission standards. That's in section 209 of the Clean Air Act. But in the same section, in a very unusual move, Congress provides that California and only California can apply to EPA for a waiver from that preemption. If EPA grants the waiver, then California is free to adopt and enforce its own standards. Note that the statute doesn't literally say California here. It says, quote, any state which has adopted standards other than crankcase emission standards to control emissions prior to March 30th, 1966. That's a roundabout legislative way of saying California. There are two main policy justifications for the California waiver, and they're interrelated. First, California was a maybe the leader in innovating in this area when Congress was drawing up the statute in the 60s. Second, California, and particularly the Los Angeles area, had, still has to some extent, uniquely bad air quality problems, colloquially referred to as smog, due to a perfect storm combination of topography, population distribution, very heavy use of cars day-to-day -day in the general population when compared to other comparable urban areas, the direction of the rotation of the earth, you know, sort of sea temperatures, localized climate patterns. So Congress recognized that California was a leader here by necessity and that they did have extreme localized air problems, although little, if any, of that policy rationale is evident on the face of the statute. Also note that on the face of the statute, there's nothing to indicate that Congress was expecting that these waivers would be anything more than a one-time event. But in fact, California sought and obtained many waivers over the decades for expanding and tweaking different aspects of its traditional car pollution program. It's not until California started getting into the business of regulating greenhouse gas emissions from cars that a waiver was ever denied at the end of the George Bush, W. Bush administration 
although the Obama EPA quickly flipped on that. So, Derek, while well, talking about greenhouse gases, if, if California's unique and local air quality conditions are kind of a, a big basis, major basis, for why California was able to kind of get waivers in the first place, then how does it make sense to grant a waiver when you're dealing with greenhouse gas emissions which are not localized? Yeah, it, it doesn't. <laughs> um, you know, the greenhouse gases uh, are emitted into the atmosphere, mixed uniformly. Uh, they are measured on a global basis. And so there's not any particular impact on California uh, for having, say, CO2 uh, in, in the atmosphere or emitted there in California. So uh, really the, the whole reason for the waiver uh, just, just evaporates. So, I, I, Justin, Derek did touch on this, but I wanted to get your take. Um, could you explain why California's regulations could have a multiple state impact and even a national impact? So before we said that only California can apply to EPA for a waiver from preemption, that's true. But once California gets a waiver, Section 177 of the Clean Air Act provides that any other state that wants to can adopt California standards and only California standards. They can't make up their own, but they can choose once California gets the waiver. Other states can, it's called Me Too states, sometimes can sign on to them in place of the federal standards. Uh, so far, uh, around 15 states plus the District of Columbia have done so. Uh, states do not need to get EPA's permission to sign on to California standards. They can just do it on their own once California gets the waiver. Now, given the nature of the automobile industry, car makers are very reluctant to ever have to build two cars targeting different subnational markets unless they absolutely have to. So in practice, California standards, and it is the single biggest market after all, and especially when adopted by a significant number of other states, California standards will drive national trends. There's this old line about how the future starts in California. Well, in this policy area, there's considerable truth to that. Well, yeah, literally. And, and, and we see this in, in many different areas because of the kind of the concern that industries might have over patchwork of laws in the states that California adopts a regulatory standard. And if other states are going to adopt it, or even if they don't, there's the industry is going to want to go to, to Congress and basically either create a national standard equal to, or, well, actually, that's basically it. I mean, this industry will just follow the California standards because you're not going to want to have multiple different types of cars. Um, so, so, Justin, when EPA is like, thinking about all this, what factors should go into making their waiver decision? So the statute says, Clean Air Act says that EPA shall, it's mandatory language, shall grant a waiver after holding a hearing and taking public comment unless EPA finds one or more of the following three things. One, California was wrong when California determined that its program will be at least as protective in the aggregate as the federal program. Two, California does not need its own standards, quote, to meet compelling and extraordinary conditions. Or three, the standards and their enforcement procedures conflict in some fundamental way with EPA's own standard setting authority under Clean Air Act Section 202. So it's that second factor whether California needs the standards, quote, to meet compelling and extraordinary conditions that has become the crux of this issue legally in recent years. In 2019, 
EPA revoked the January 2013 greenhouse gas waiver based largely on a reinterpretation of this statutory language under which, as was alluded to earlier, global problems without a sufficiently specific nexus to California's own conditions don't qualify. So yes, it's available, at least in principle, for smog and sort of localized pollution problems under this interpretation, the 2019 interpretation, but for climate change, no. There's a nexus where emissions from tailpipes in California will lead to elevated areas of traditional pollutants in the metro areas, especially of California, which will then lead to health and welfare effects on the residents of California in a tight sort of triangular nexus. But emissions from the tailpipes in LA have no more bearing on elevated, uh, globally mixed elevated concentrations of greenhouse gases in the upper stratosphere than emissions in Lima, Peru, or in Tokyo, Japan do. Uh, So the nexus just isn't there. Uh, But the Biden administration has flipped that interpretation back and they've readopted sort of an anything goes. Uh, We already decided that decades ago that California needs some program of its own. So under the current view and let's say the blue EPA view, uh, that is sort of a rubber stamp and almost a dead letter under that view. Jesse, what's the timing on this kind of waiver decision process? There's uh, I don't believe there's any sort of hard and fast statutory deadline. Uh, And in fact, it's notable that in the 2012 joint rulemaking, you know, EPA sort of set its ramp and, and DOT set its ramp kind of, you know, hand in hand. And then they did not grant the new and expanded California waiver until some months later at the beginning of 2013. So, you know, historically, prior to the greenhouse gas era, this was a largely uncontroversial and unlitigated subject area. These were handed out fairly routinely. Now it has taken on a weight and a freight of its own uh, in terms of policy, politics, and then as we'll get into potentially legally in terms of litigation, but they they can move quickly if, if they devote the resources. EPA can move quickly to uh, the common period is statutorily acquired, but other than that, it's a question of resources as to how quick they want to move on this and policy. Derek, let's talk about real briefly the economy here as it relates to the waiver. Yeah. What what would be the impact of granting the waiver, just kind of as a practical matter to Americans, American families? And the economy. Yeah, I think uh, I think of three things. Um, first, granting this waiver enables the DOT regulations for the whole country to be higher because DOT says it's just looking at what California is doing and it's ramping up uh, its own requirements. Two, you'd have the two markets that Justin was just talking about. Uh, if all the states that have typically followed California followed them this time, that's about forty percent of the auto market. And for all the reasons he described, you'd have auto companies that would be a little hesitant to have two different markets. Third, this functions as a huge subsidy to California because you have truck buyers in Kentucky or Texas or Florida or wherever else paying more so that those car companies can uh, discount electric vehicles that they have to sell in California. Now, let me just say, if California is the future, it's not a future I want to live in, (laughs) okay? Uh, Within a week, you had California put out this proposal that it was going to ban the sale of the internal combustion engine by 2035. Within a week, you had the grid operator in California telling people we, um, the, the grid in California is not able to keep up with energy demands. So they said between 5 and 9 p.m., please don't have your temperature below 78 degrees. This was in the summer. Turn off appliances, unplug them, turn off unnecessary lights, and yes, don't charge your electric vehicles. <laughs> so within a week, they say we're going to get rid of the internal combustion engine. And at the same time, they say, oh, but you can't charge your EVs. You just can't make this stuff up. Of course, a lot of 
people in California want to promote public transit, so maybe that would, if you can't have your EV, <laughs> you can just take the bus, I guess. Um, and electric buses have been a failure where they've been tried. So in uh, Minnesota, they had 10 electric buses that they wanted to use for their transit system, and they ended up just giving up. And in fact, they went then to uh, renewable diesel, I think, in that case. And renewable diesel has great GHG benefits, actually, without the downsides of battery degradation and uh, limited range. And batteries just aren't that good for hauling around a lot of weight. You know, I, there, I just saw a study the other day. Uh, a, um, a YouTuber put out a, uh, a video of a Ford F-150 towing a trailer, and it couldn't even make it 100 miles, <laughs> uh, the electric version. Uh, the, the gas version could, could make it much further. So, you know, it's just, it's just not good for all applications, and California's vision of 100% EVs uh, just won't work for everybody. Well, that sounds uh, like the thing we would want to mandate. Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, but, you know, I mean, it's important to also stress that if consumers do want, you know, EVs, great. But, hey, maybe not, like, mandate it. Um, That's right. And, and, and they should pay for it. Um, you know, yeah, that's what exactly. the, the free market would say. Is there's there's some applications that are beneficial, then the market will take care of that. So let's briefly turn to some legal questions. I think we've addressed some of these actually. Um, we we talked well. We didn't expressly state the major questions doctrine, but we did. Derek, you had referenced it. But just mm -hmm. I'm going to turn to you. Could you briefly explain the major questions doctrine and the West Virginia versus EPA case? The major questions doctrine is best understood as an exception to Chevron deference. Chevron deference, first announced by SCOTUS in 1984, says that if an agency is administering a statute that gives it regulatory authority, and if that statute has ambiguous language, then a court should defer to the agency's interpretation of that ambiguity as long as that interpretation is within broad bounds of reasonability even if the court thinks that that's not the best reading. What major question says is that some agency actions are so momentous that arguing from ambiguity won't cut it anymore. And for those rules, instead, the agency needs to point in the statute to a clear statement of authorization from Congress to take this particular type of action. SCOTUS had issued opinions in a few cases over the past generation that echoed this reasoning. But until West Virginia versus EPA just a few months ago, SCOTUS had never actually used the phrase major questions doctrine to label what it was doing. West Virginia was actually the third case using this doctrine last term. The first two were when SCOTUS struck down the CDC's eviction moratorium in August 2021 and then struck down OSHA's COVID vaccine mandate in January of this year. But West Virginia, in June of this year, was where the doctrine officially got a name in a controlling majority opinion of the court. Now, just briefly, that case dealt with a 2015 EPA rule, the Clean Power Plant. That rule took a statute that had previously only been used to set limits for pollutant emissions from power plants or other types of facility that the individual power plants could meet by installing controls or by changing operations at the plant. But for a variety of reasons, EPA wasn't satisfied with that approach when it came to regulating greenhouse gas emissions from gas and especially coal-fired power plants. So in the clean power plan, EPA set emission rates so low, so stringent, that in practice, no power plant could actually comply with them in its own emissions. 
Instead, the owners of the plant would comply by buying credits, by subsidizing renewable electricity generation from their competitors, or by building it out themselves, shifting election, electricity generation at the aggregate grid-wide level away from fossil fuel. This is known as generation shifting. So in June, a six-justice majority of the Supreme Court held that this was an illicit attempt by EPA to set national energy policy under the guise of its environmental statute. They held that this newly christened major questions doctrine applied here. They found no clear statement of congressional authorization for this generation-shifting approach in the Clean Air Act, and so they ruled the Clean Power Plan was illegal. Now, SCOTUS did not rule on finer questions of, is EPA literally constrained only to going by, by plant? Can it ever use credits in trading? It just said, whatever the line is, the Clean Power Plan was way over the line. Yeah, it's an important point. It's, it didn't say anything about they can't regulate greenhouse gases. It's just about what they were proposing or what they actually have finalized. That's right. Um, so, Derek, you, you kind of got to this before, but let's, let me just ask it anyway. Um, so do these rules and the EPA waiver, do you think they could have major question implications? On the surface, I think they do. I'd love to hear Justin's view on this as well. But just as you were trying to change over the electricity generation fleet, uh, in the West Virginia versus EPA case, here you have two agencies looking to turn over the transportation fleet in a way that was clearly not foreseen by Congress, um, in particular because uh, greenhouse gases weren't even uh, you know, a thought <laughs> when the Clean Air Act was passed. And then NHTSA's statute explicitly says you can't consider alternative fuel technologies. So, and you had the agencies that kind of rearranged how they were regulating in recent practice, right, with both the Obama and Trump administrations doing joint rules, trying to uh, further the line in the Massachusetts versus EPA case that said there's no reason to think that EPA and DOT can't regulate harmoniously. Well, they didn't even try harmoniously this time, really. Instead, they let uh, California and EPA go first and then NHTSA go last. And uh, I think this is just uh, on its surface is a, uh, a really uh, way too cute by half um, attempt by the administration to uh, force a, a major change in the nation's transportation fleet uh, that smacks a lot of what they were trying to do in the uh, clean power plan that got struck down under West Virginia versus EPA. So, Justin, what, what is your thought on that? I largely agree with what we just said, and I would talk a little, I would note a little about maybe the evolution of the doctrine over the decades. You know, before it had an official name, and when you'd see little glimpses of it here and there from SCOTUS, a lot of the original focus was, well, is it is it the price, is it the sheer cost impact, either on the regulated industry or more broadly to society? And I think that emphasis has shifted away from that, although that's still a factor, uh, and that's obviously very, very costly rules we're talking about here. Now, notably, even when SCOTUS officially said, okay, this doctrine's real, it's got a name, you know, no more questions over whether this is just a mutation of Chevron, it is its own thing now. Uh, they did not contrast Chevron with Chevron is basically a recipe, step one, step two. You don't have that here. You still have an impressionistic grab bag of factors, depending on how you count between five and 15. Some people have counted uh, different factors that could indicate that you're dealing with a rule that raises so-called major questions. And the emphasis has been, and some of the questioning and argument uh, from justices like Justice Barrett and others have suggested that they're zooming in on this idea of getting out of your lane. So the CDC says, you know, people can't evict people from their apartments. You say, this has nothing to do traditionally 
with uh, uh, you know fumigating and quarantine and the other kind of traditional uh, CDC type measures. Uh, look at the different fates of the OSHA vaccine mandate struck down as an attempt to regulate for all of society something that is not a workplace related problem. But uh, but in in the same breath on the same day, a, a case argued in tandem, SCOTUS said that the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Uh, vaccine mandate. That was okay. That was not a major transformation. They ruled of their statutory authority, uh, basically because the statutes do talk about preventing infection, and it just seemed like it was less of a getting outside of your lane. So all will hinge on whether, in the first instance, the D.C. Circuit, certainly the Supreme Court, sees this as so outside of the lane of EPA or DOT's original statutory mandate that it just cannot be squeezed into the text here there is no clear authorization for this kind of transformative rule versus the narrative that certainly the Department of Justice, blue states and other defenders of this approach will say, well, the statutes are very broad deliberately. They're designed to evolve over time, uh, take account of both increased scientific knowledge about pollution and uh, developments in technology that are available in industry. That will that was essentially what the fight was in the Clean Power Plan. I don't know for sure that it'll go the same way, but it is, I think, a serious risk for them. Yeah, but, you know, with the Clean Power Plan, the idea was that the EPA was going to, under that scheme, you're regulating the the power plants. You're actually regulating them. You're not actually deciding we're going to regulate you to buy, well, we're just going to shut you down. That's how we're going to address the, the air pollution. And we're going to actually intentionally try to sh- change how generation, electricity generation is um which is just generating this country. And it seems a lot of parallels here with this case. Um, Justin, I'm going to finish off with a couple of questions with you on the legal side. One, are there any other legal issues that we should be aware of in the, in the kind of as relates to these developments? Yes, I would uh, make sure folks are aware of some of the arguments being made in the California waiver context. Uh, the sort of red state coalition led by Ohio, I believe, articulated this position even under the Trump administration when uh, some interpretations were changing then, and is pressing this now in court, uh, Ohio's primary first-line position, as I understand it, is that the waiver mechanism in the statute itself is facially unconstitutional, and they rely here on the doctrine of equal footing and equal sovereignty of the states. A major case was that was that where that was articulated in the previous decade was Shelby County, Alabama versus Holder, which was a Voting Rights Act case. And essentially there, uh, the Supreme Court, and I believe Justice Chief Justice Roberts wrote the, wrote the opinion, they held it may have been very valid in the 1960s to sort of apply special rules for pre-clearance for certain primarily southern jurisdictions, given the history there. But 50 years later, those legislative facts are stale. You know, we start from the presumption that differential treatment of the states in their sovereignty must be justified by sort of real compelling localized problems. And they saw, you know, this is a new era is what they were holding. So this was not the position that the Trump EPA took. The Trump EPA took the position that the waiver was, you know, appropriately understood to be intended for localized smog-like problems, but that they were mindful of the doctrine of equal footing as one of the factors, but only one, cautioning against allowing it for greenhouse gases. Ohio, at least in their first line argument, is sort of swimming for the fences and saying, this limits state sovereignty unequally, and you just cannot do that in our constitutional system. And then as a fallback, they say, certainly in any event, it's not appropriate here. So this is an issue which could, separate and apart from the transformative economic aspects we've been talking about, 
could be SCOTUS bait on this sort of federalism and sovereignty questions as well. So, Justin, real briefly, what, what are there some litigations on the rules right now? Yes. My understanding is that there are three cases currently pending in the D.C. Circuit, and they're undergoing active briefing right now. Uh, one of them is against EPA on the California waiver issue, sort of the flip on the policy and interpretation of the act there. Another one challenges EPA's finalization of its new emission standards. And then a third challenges Department of Transportation NHTSA's action here. And recall here that the rules were joint in 2009 and 2012, although there wasn't a lot of serious litigation there. This time, however, the agencies have decoupled and gone separately. And so you end up with related, but my understanding is not consolidated actions that are going to be hashed out in roughly the same timeline in the coming months. So, Derek, I want to turn to you on a, on two big picture questions here. So let's start with, um, all right, what's, genu- what's genuinely motivating the agencies in California to go after gas and diesel powered cars? And, and, and assuming the goal is really to address global warming, Will these policies have any impact on global temperatures? Yeah, the motivations are um, tough to divine uh, in some ways. But I would say, I'd point out, it's not just electric vehicles they're going after. Uh, Right now it is, but they've signaled through their executive orders that they also want to tackle off-road internal combustion engines, so things like tractors and combines, uh, lawnmowers, chainsaws, all of that. So, um, you know, in in a related uh, news item. I think I'll probably retire and, and go to Yuma, Arizona and open a car dealership and a gasoline mower uh, <laughs> establishment as well, because uh, I just don't think these are going to work for everybody in all situations. Um, the other thing is zero emission vehicles, so-called, are not really zero. Uh, during the manufacturing process, in fact, electric vehicles start off with a, a deficit compared to the internal combustion engine. And in fact, uh, depending on the power grid, uh, they may have higher overall emissions in their lifetime. Uh, than the internal combustion engine, particularly when you look at hybrid technologies. Another thing is that they decide uh, to go only with electric vehicles and not plug-in hybrid electric vehicles at all. And uh, there's been some good work done. For example, Toyota has really put to, uh, some some good numbers to paper. And if you look at just the amount of materials needed for one battery electric vehicle, you could instead have four or five plug-in hybrid vehicles. A battery electric vehicle is carrying around thousands of pounds of batteries all the time, even though you're not going to need all of that capacity all of the time. Whereas a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle, you could use the first 50 miles or so as electric, and then you switch on to a gasoline mower, uh, sorry, motor. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think looking at all of that, you got to scratch your head. Um, the fact that they're not considering the electricity sources uh, that these cars are using so it could be a coal-powered car. Uh, and as far as EPA is concerned, if it's an EV, it has zero emissions. And that's just totally um, uh, illegitimate. In terms of the global temperatures, uh, Bjorn Lomberg's done some work on this. And even if you did all of Paris, um, you know, not just on the transportation side, but uh, if you measure the impact of every nation fulfilling all, its every promise, by 2030, the total temperature reduction would be 0.048 degrees centigrade by 2100. So the temperature impacts you're talking about here are, are minuscule, non-existent. And one last question, big picture for you, Derek. Um, how would these regulatory actions kind of undermine individual freedom and separation of powers? 
On the individual freedom side, it's very clear, right? You won't have a, a choice to buy an internal combustion engine vehicle to buy a vehicle that meets your needs. Instead, it's one size fits all. Everybody's got to have an electric vehicle. Uh, the individual freedom um, impacts there are, are obvious and extreme. And separation of powers, I think, is an incredibly important one. Here, Congress has to share quite a bit of the blame because they have just granted generalized grants of powers to EPA, um, for example. And then that's been taken by EPA later on. Here, you know, we get the Clean Air Act, you know, about 50 years later, you have them using that as an excuse to ban the internal combustion engine. So Congress, um, you know, I think the courts can put that back in the box a little bit. But Congress needs to uh, to speak on these issues and not just leave it up to government agencies. So, you know, actually, um, because I can't help myself. Yeah, West Virginia, you know, because I think about the West Virginia case, you know, in some ways, I actually don't blame Congress in, in with the Clean Air Act in, in the, the West Virginia versus EPA context or even in, in this context, because it's tough to write a statute. And it's mm-hmm. certainly and the EPA, Congress never envisioned the um, EPA in the, the West Virginia context or even in this context, taking these types of actions. And, you know, oftentimes Congress just delegates his power away. Right. I don't know. I mean, obviously the Clean Air Act is too broad in many instances, but in, in some of these examples here, like this that we're talking about, I think this is a good old fashioned situation where, like in the West Virginia case, where the court was concerned that, you know what, you're, the agency is basically ignoring the will intent of Congress. You're, yeah. you're going beyond what Congress even wanted. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's absolutely fair. And uh, I guess the point is that we need to have real debates in Congress. They need, and to some extent they have, particularly on climate change. You know, we had uh, uh, the mid-2000s. We had when Obama came in, he pushed again for climate. And they've said no every time. And so uh, most of the blame on this belongs on the left when they uh, don't see clearly from the American people that they do not want this. Uh, they do not want these radical changes that will increase cost, limit choice. And we haven't touched it on this podcast, but also implicate our national security. You know, it's a big part of what the DOT is supposed to consider. Remember, after all, it started because it was the oil Arab, the Arab oil embargo. Uh, it was a national security uh, piece of that they were supposed to consider. And nowadays, it's flipped exactly on its head. Uh, we're an oil exporting nation. We're very recently we were called energy dominant, and switching to an all EV fleet actually makes us very susceptible to China, which dominates the EV supply chains. So actually, they're really flipping that uh, that bill right on its head. That that's an excellent point. Just to note in this context, whether you're talking about building out the electric grid for the anticipated increased demand of electricity with a mostly or all EV fleet, or whether you're talking about certain critical minerals and other inputs to the manufacturing process for the cars themselves and for the necessary infrastructure, this collides head on into the issue of permitting and permitting reform. How are we going to build all this out? How are we going to get this stuff out of the ground? Or are we just going to become more and more dependent on foreign actors, some of them not very savory, uh, for these inputs. So as we wrap up, what are a few key takeaways you think listeners should take with them and any points you think that we maybe we missed? Uh, Justin, let's get back to you. What do you think? I just want to stress two points here, one about policy and then the other about jurisprudence. On policy first, as we've discussed thoroughly here, the president of the United States, EPA, the state of California, have set very aggressive goals to essentially phase out internal combustion engines. 
This requires a massive increase year over year in EV market share. There's a very short period of time we're talking about. Monies from last year's infrastructure bill and this year's inflation bill will work in tandem with these federal regulations, with these new positions on preemption, and with California and other jurisdictions' policies to try to bring about this transformation. We really have something comparable to the mobilization for the Second World War here happening, and I'm not sure how much of the general public realizes that it's official federal policy now that half of new sales will be EVs by the end of this decade, and that our biggest state has said that its fleet, new fleet, will be all EVs just five years after that. So, so much for policy, just the sheer scale of what we're talking about. On jurisprudence, it's very important for folks to understand that historically, Title II of the Clean Air Act for mobile sources, as contrasted to Title I for stationary sources of factories and power plants, Title II, the cars and things that go vroom, has been much less litigious. Often, industry, labor, NGOs, the blue and red states would all sort of hold their nose and join hands and, and not sue on and not bring marquee legal challenges. So a lot of these fundamental questions of how this statute works have not been extensively litigated even in the D.C. Circuit in many years. And some of these aspects have never reached SCOTUS, certainly the current SCOTUS. So it's very difficult to game out how this is going to play out. These issues are not guaranteed to go to SCOTUS, but I think it's entirely likely that they will. Thanks, Justin. Derek, any key takeaways for us? I have key takeaways and one thing I hadn't gotten to yet, and that's safety. So you mentioned NHTSA, and we didn't say what it stands for. It's National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. They're supposed to consider safety. On this recent um, bill, on this recent regulation, they admitted that highway deaths were going to be 1,800 higher because of the rule at a time when traffic deaths are at an all-time high. They have been completely negligent on that front, and for that reason alone, uh, the rule should be rejected. Look, moving for a Green New Deal in transportation is going to be costly. We know that. EVs cost about $18,000 more on average. And the um, number of subsidies is just mind-boggling. In California, I added them up one time. Five different subsidies totaled up to over $20,000 per EV. And that's a lot of subsidy from out-of-state into California, where up until recently about half of all electric cars were sold. It's also a major assault on consumer choice. Uh, we need to trust people to be able to make decisions. Look, gasoline prices are relatively high right now, but there's a sticker right on the window or immediately available if you're buying a used car on fueleconomy.gov where you can find out what your fuel costs are going to be. Let's trust people to make their own decisions as to balance out performance and range and durability, uh, cost and fueling cost. People can make those choices. They don't need Washington or Sacramento to make it for them. And then lastly is that national security piece. Uh, the fact is that uh, changing to an all-EV future would put us at the mercy of China. And I think we've seen recently with Russia's invasion of Ukraine that uh, the rest of Europe is completely uh, ill-prepared for Russia's use of energy as a weapon. We do not want to be put in that situation with China. And let me just say lastly, as a takeaway, Congress has stepped in before when uh, NHTSA and, and DOT got out of line with their fuel economy standards that went too high, too far, too fast. And they stepped in with appropriations riders. And I think if a new conservative majority comes on the scene next month, they ought to look at doing just that, to preserve choice for the American people and to do what we can about very, very high car prices right now. Uh, they're extremely high, and this would provide some immediate relief. Derek and Justin, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thank you. Once again, I'm Darren Back, Senior Research Fellow, Environmental Policy and Regulation at the Heritage Foundation. And I want to thank all of you who are listening to the program and hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment's PowerCast. Please tell your family, friends, and colleagues about the PowerCast and also our new newsletter. It's very popular called The Charge, so subscribe to that. And be on the lookout for the next edition of the PowerCast coming out in two weeks. Thank you again.